0: All right. Um, So I'm Scott Topiel. I'm uh, with Hatzal of Los Angeles. I'm LA-16 over here. Um, A lot of you already know me um, from the various discussions in the uh, medics group and the 911cast podcast. Um, So just a quick introduction, since I know we have a lot of people that I haven't had in my class before. Um, I am a registered nurse. This presentation I actually put together for the fire department and have modified it a little bit to be relevant to uh, what Hatsala does um, and taken out a few of the kind of equipment specific stuff. So if anybody uses the Zoll monitor, um, I have a little tutorial on active on initializing capnography monitoring um, that I've taken out from tonight's lecture, since I know some of you use different equipment. Um, but if anybody wants it at the end, I'll send a link to watch that video too if you use the Zoll X series. Alright, so um, I don't usually read objectives, but we do have some learning objectives for tonight. So there they are. Um, You can screenshot them if you really want to see them.
1: As we breathe in air, the oxygen molecules enter the nostrils and travel downwards through the pharynx and trachea to finally reach the bronchi. From each bronchus, oxygen travels into the lungs Within the lungs, the bronchus divides repeatedly to form bronchioles. Oxygen travels through these bronchioles and reaches the alveoli, each of which is surrounded by a network of capillaries. A section of one alveolus shows the presence of numerous alveolar chambers with pores. Blood, containing RBCs, is seen flowing through the capillaries. The oxygen molecules from the alveolus diffuse into the capillary and then get absorbed by the bluish-purple RBCs. This causes oxygenation of the RBCs and a transition in their color from bluish-purple to red is observed. The blood moving into the alveolus contains RBCs and carbon dioxide molecules. These molecules are released into the alveolus the carbon dioxide collects in the alveolar chamber. And then from the alveolus it travels through the bronchioles into the bronchus which finally reaches the trachea and is breathed out through the nostrils.
0: So when we're talking about capnography Um, What we're talking about, of course, is measuring the CO2 that gets exhaled with every breath. Um, I think it's important to know where the CO2 comes from. So the oxygen obviously comes from the air that we breathe and the CO2 is produced by the cells. So looking at this rudimentary diagram over here, all the cells perform work, they take oxygen in, they take fuel in, they do their work and the waste product of that work the exhaust, if you will, is the CO2. So CO2 and water come out as the cells are producing uh, whatever it is that they do. And so CO2 becomes not just a marker of how effective the physical act of breathing is, but how how well the body is perfusing. So it gives you a real indication as to what's going on underneath the hood. So other than as opposed to oxygen saturation that we'll talk about in just a minute. CO2 provides you a lot of information about perfusion itself. And that's why it's really useful, especially when we get beyond um, just cardiac arrest management or monitoring whether or not your tube's in place. So before we dive into more details about how to interpret all this, um, try and make this a little interactive. You can use the chat, you can unmute yourself, um, but let me throw this out there. Does anyone want to take a stab at what's the difference between ventilation, respiration, and perfusion? Is there any difference amongst those things? Ventilation: <laughs> air moving in and out.
1: Respiration is air exchanging with uh, the, in the in the in the lungs, and perfusion is at the cellular level.
0: Excellent. Yep, that's exactly right. Ventilation is that physical act of moving the air in and out. That's what we call breathing. Respiration is that exchange of the gas that we just saw in the video. And then the perfusion is the actual blood flow to the tissues and that gas happening to exchange at the cellular level. Excellent, perfect. So let's talk about a few key terms uh, that I wanna make sure we're all on the same page about. So we talk about ETCO2, which is our end tidal carbon dioxide. Um, So that's the actual amount of the concentration of the CO2 that gets measured when a person exhales. Um, capnometry, That no, that is the numeric value of the measured exhale CO2. The capnogram is what we call each one of those waveforms that we're going to be looking at in a moment. And then at the end, we have capnography, which is putting it all together and giving us that real-time continuous waveform analysis of the CO2 levels. So one thing that's important, and different monitors work differently, um, but the number that you get on your monitor for end CO2, that measurement, and this is a picture from a Zoll, um, this is kind of, this is a rolling average. Um, in order to calculate that and make it meaningful to you, I think the Zoll monitors looked at the last seven or eight breaths. Um, this is about a minute lag, depending on where you catch it in the cycle. Uh, so if you're just watching this number on your monitor, this end tidal CO2, you're not getting absolutely real-time information that's breath to breath. And this number can take a while to change when the patient's condition changes. So for instance, you're monitoring an ET tube and that tube were to get dislodged, you might find that this number won't hit zero for as much as a full entire minute until after that tube's been dislodged. And so you can imagine if a patient has stopped breathing or your tube's out of place, if you're not watching the actual waveform capnography, and you're just displaying the entitled CO2 number and some monitors, you actually have to turn on the waveform, like on the Zoll, uh, you can be missing some really important information. So it's really important to make sure you're looking at this waveform capnography, because this is near real time. This is gonna give you, with just a couple of seconds at most lag, um, while it processes the previous breath. And you're gonna be able to see a change much more quickly than relying on the number. So I usually get questions about pulse ox because in some ways these seem almost redundant. So what's the point of pulse ox if I'm going to tell you that capnography is such a valuable piece of of information. And it really is great. And what I want to emphasize is that capno does not replace the pulse ox. Um, I've encountered this as we roll out teaching on capnography to some of the medics that I work with and we really start to emphasize how important it is to monitor this on as many of the patients as possible. They start to then de-emphasize the use of the pulse ox. So these are not meant to replace each other. These are meant to just help you build a better assessment picture. Um, The key here is you gotta know what a pulse ox is telling you compared to your capno, right? Um, What does it mean? If, a, if the pulse ox says 97%. What does that mean to you? Somebody wanna unmute and explain to me what it is we're looking at at 97% O2 sat?
1: Basically measures the um, oxygen on board of the, of the uh, blood cells.
0: Right, So so when we see 97%, every one of your hemoglobins that's in that red blood cell carries oxygen, right? And when the blood is passing that pulse ox probe, it's measuring of the blood that it sees what percentage of those hemoglobins is carrying oxygen. So in this case, 97% of the blood cells that pass that O2SAT sensor happen to be carrying oxygen. And that's what it's giving you a number. The thing that your 0 2 sat can't tell you is if there's enough of those red blood cells to begin with. So think about a patient that's, in, that's had trauma, for instance, or it's had had a GI bleed that person may be low on blood cells because of the bleeding. Their hemoglobin numbers are low, but the blood that exists has oxygen on it, right? There's no problem with their breathing, with their, with their respiration. And so the O2 sat may look really good even though that patient is not perfusing well because they don't have enough blood. Um, and they may be what we call relatively hypoxic. So just because you have a good O2 sat doesn't mean that the body has enough ability to carry oxygen to meet the needs. All right, so the next slide is going to be uh, kind of scary to some sensitive viewers, so just uh, bear with me. Nothing nothing inappropriate. But what kind of MSCE is this where I'm showing you the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve, right? Um, <laughs> this can be scary, and I don't expect you to memorize this, or, and we're not going to dig into real details about it. But there is something about O2 saturation um, that I think is really interesting and very important. So take a look at this curve. This is the curve in which oxygen and hemoglobin kind of like each other. And this, the numbers going up and down here is the oxygen saturation, that percentage. And the bottom numbers are the uh, the actual measured amount of, of oxygen in the blood. Take a look at where we hit about 90% O2 sat, right? Right about there where that where that line is. So the curve here gets kind of flat at that point. You see how it's very steep in the beginning and then it starts to flatten out as we get closer to 100% O2 O2 sat. Um, The reason why I like to point this out is because hemoglobin loves oxygen, but it loves it even more when it's already got some. So the less saturated the blood is, the harder it is for it to carry oxygen, and and the more saturated it is, the easier. And so that's why often when you give just a little bit of supplemental oxygen by nasal cannula to a patient that's say satting in the 80s, you notice that their O2 sat comes up really quickly. Um, In most cases, it just takes a little bit of oxygen to get those mildly hypoxic patients or even those patients in the kind of that 80s range um, to sat back up into the kind of mid to high 90s and even hit 100%. And that's because they're kind of right at the cusp of that steep part of the curve. but there's a converse to it. And that's why almost normal is still dangerous, right? Because under 94%, we consider abnormal for most of our patients. So if you have somebody who's sitting right there on that kind of, that that steep part of the curve, it takes just a little bit of extra oxygen demand, a little bit of extra effort to make their O2 set drop to the point where they can't compensate. Because once there's not enough oxygen here, you see how steep that curve becomes. And so somebody might be, okay sitting there, satting at 90%, satting in the 80s even, especially we saw this a lot with our kind of happy hypoxic COVID patients. Um, all it takes is eating a meal, walking up the stairs, going to the bathroom to desat them. And those patients lose their ability to compensate and they can crash hard. Uh, so when you're, a set, when you're analyzing your O2 saturation readings, just kind of keep this in the back of your mind. And this will help you not only understand why a little bit of oxygen goes a long way, but also that some of our patients are right on that danger zone. And though they don't look quite that bad yet, they can crash once that demand increases. And there's lots of other things that can affect this that's way beyond what we're gonna talk about today. So what I want you to do while I'm talking is try and hold your breath as long as possible. So oxygen stays in your blood even after you stop breathing. That means your pulse ox is going to stay normal for quite a while, even though you're no longer breathing, right? So for those of you that are holding your breath still, uh, or have been able to keep holding your breath, your O2 saturation probably hasn't changed. And in fact, if you're giving extra oxygen, you can start breathing if you haven't already. If you give extra oxygen to a patient, you throw them on a nasal cannula, you, a person's O2 sat can remain normal even though they've stopped breathing for as much as five minutes. But if you were monitoring CO2, and watching that waveform, you would pick up on it a lot quicker. So the thing I love about all of this is that this quote says it all. With with capnography, you get A, B, and C and a single squiggly line. Okay, let's watch what happens when somebody stops breathing, or in this case, while I hold my breath. The capnography is dropped to nothing. There's no more waveform. I'm holding my breath right now, simulating the apnea. That capnometry number though still says 40, 39, and a respiratory rate of 19. That's gonna lag for a little bit. But look at the O2 sat on the bottom. Still at 98%, nothing's really changed. At this point, I've been apneic or holding my breath, for about 30 seconds, and still 99% on the O2 sat. And that capnometry number, if we weren't watching the waveform, just now finally turned to zero. O2 sat on a patient that's not breathing. You can see the value of capnometry. I finally couldn't hold my breath any longer, and so you see those big breaths blowing off that retained CO2, hence the number 50. This is why capnography is such an important addition to your patient monitoring. It gives you instant feedback about patient's ventilatory status that O2 saturation just can't provide, allowing you to intervene earlier before serious and irreversible problems develop. All right, so with that background, let's get into our actual waveforms and what this means when we put it all together and we start monitoring these patients. So this is a picture of yours truly over at the uh, paramedic base station. Um, For those that are not from California, we have a concept of MICN, which is a mobile intensive care nurse. Um, We have base hospitals that paramedic units are assigned to. And they radio in or call into the base hospital, and we provide, as nurses, uh, their medical control. The MICN, myself in this case, um, asks the medic over the phone who says they have their patient on capnography who's having respiratory distress, asks them to describe the waveform. That's a question we often ask our medics. And I'll tell you, almost without fail, the answer I get is good. So don't answer right now. Some of you already know the answer. Maybe most of you do. But looking at this waveform, think about how you would actually describe it if you were asked to. So let's take a look at the kind of anatomy of a waveform before we look at the specific types that you might see. So we break these into four different parts. So each capnogram has four phases, right? So starting from the left, we have phase one. That's when the patient starts to exhale their last breath. At this point, the CO detector is only picking up air that wasn't in the lungs. We're moving all that air that's sitting in the trachea, that's maybe in the bronchioles, in the mouth, it's in the tubing. And since our monitor has been calibrated to room air before we hooked it up to the patient, anything that's in the atmosphere is going to be zero. So this is a flat line as we clear what we call the dead space in their airway. As we approach phase two, you see that quick upward stroke. That is representative of a mixture between the dead space air and air that's actually coming now from the alveoli, like we saw in the video, that has the extra CO2 mixed into it. So you're gonna see, in most cases, you should see this rapid increase on the capnogram as all that CO2 starts to get sampled by your monitor. Then we hit phase three. Phase three, we call the alveolar plateau. This is where all of the air being sampled by your monitor is coming from the lungs. We've cleared all the dead space, and those CO2 levels begin to kind of level off. But in a normal capnogram, it has a little bit of an upward angle to it. And then this very last part where it's circled, that is the peak of the CO2 that gets measured. That's what we call our end tidal CO2, because it's at the end of the tidal volume of the exhaled breath. Then the patient, goes ahead and takes their next breath in. And you see this phase zero where the inhalation begins. So all that CO2 in the tubing gets, that's left gets inhaled back. The air rushes in from the outside, and the monitor goes back to baseline, back to zero. So this is what a normal capnogram looks like. That's what each of these phases of it look, uh, represent. Um, if asked to describe this, most typically we'll say this is like a box-shaped waveform really it kind of looks like a fedora if you look at the shape, right? So so I teach my medics to either describe the normal one as a box shape or as a hat-shaped waveform, and then I'll help differentiate it from some of the other things that we're going to see. So taking a look at normal, again, this is an animation of what a normal breathing pattern would look like, what a normal capnogram would look like. Um, The normal range is 35 to 45. It's measured in millimeters of mercury. For those of you that are into chemistry, this is the partial pressure of the gas that's being sampled. Um, but this is something you should memorize if you haven't already. The, the normal entitled CO2 is 35 to 45. And of course, as a refresher, the normal respiratory rate for an adult is between 12 and 20. Um, almost normal is not normal. So patients that are breathing a little bit fast at 22, at 24, close to normal is still abnormal. Um, so it should look nice, regular, box-shaped. Then, of course, there's something that looks like this. This is apnea. So when the breathing stops, there's no more exhalation, and you see a flat line on your end tidal, on your capnography, right? So we define apnea as a lack of breathing for at least 10 seconds with no respiratory effort. Um, some things can cause this are the obvious, right? cardiac arrest, respiratory arrest. Also consider your equipment, right? You wanna make sure your equipment is connected correctly. Um, The biggest thing here, and we're gonna revisit it later because it's so critical, is if you have an intubated patient, you have to check the tube. If you had a waveform that looked pretty good and then you see it kind of disappears and then goes to nothing, you need to assume your tube is no longer in place. Um, There's absolutely no excuse for missing a dislodged tube with the tools that we have today. Uh, When in doubt, you're going to have to pull that tube and attempt again. Don't be so confident about your intubation skills uh, and let a patient get transported without an airway. Unfortunately, we still see this happening. And now let's talk about some things that can make us see an abnormal level of entitled CO2. So the first one is hypoventilation. And that doesn't just mean slow breathing. Hypoventilation can happen with a normal breath rate also if there's not enough air being moved. So if the tidal volume is reduced according to the needs of the patient and they're breathing a little bit shallow, that means they're not going to move as much CO2 and they're going to hold on to it. And you're going to see an end tidal CO2 above normal. It's going to be greater than 45. So this this capnogram is going to be taller. You can see you can see on the scale here. Um, CO2 is gonna build up and get retained in the lungs. And so every breath is gonna have a larger concentration of it. Um, The truth of the matter is, as good as we think we are at this, we are not very good at visually measuring tidal volume. Just looking at a patient and deciding whether or not that tidal volume is normal or it's it's inadequate or adequate. Um, If they're breathing really shallow, like guppy breathing as some people call it, yeah, we'll notice that. Um, But the CO2 monitoring is gonna be your best way of really knowing how effective that patient's breathing is. Um, What are some things that can cause hypoventilation? What can you think of that can lead to end tidal CO2 to be higher than normal? Anything come to mind? Opiates, I see. Narcotics, things that can alter your respiratory drive. I see a bunch of things in the chat right now for ODs. Um, Lots of things can do it, right? Drugs can do them, um, drugs that su- depress your central nervous system or your op- uh, sorry, or your respiratory drive. Um, obesity hypoventilation syndrome. So if you think about patients that are obese and we have them lying too flat, that you can have a mechanical obstruction to their, to their tidal volume just because of that extra weight. So it's important to also make sure that we're positioning our patients in a way that allows them to ventilate effectively. Um, Hyperventilation is the opposite end of the spectrum, right? This is caused by either too rapid of a breath rate or by deep breathing, which means larger tidal volumes. So think about if moving less air lets CO2 build up in the lungs, which will raise that number, then moving too much air gets rid of the CO2 too quickly and that number gets low. So hyperventilation is gonna show up as a low end tidal CO2 or a number that's less than 35 um and sometimes you can have deep and rapid breathing in a combination so it can be low for a bunch of other reasons too and so we're going to talk about that um but remember co2 gets produced through cellular work through perfusion so if you have a low end tidal co2 but you have what appears to be relatively normal breathing then you have to ask yourself what's causing it to be low is it just because they're hyperventilating or they simply not producing the CO2 and there's another problem there. So don't just assume low end tidal CO2 is a lung problem. It could be something, it can be something different. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Now, the most common use case that I see for capnography is cardiac arrest. Um, The American Heart Association recommends that you monitor capnography during resuscitation. Uh, as a way of gauging uh, not just the effectiveness of your ventilations, but also a way of monitoring the effectiveness of your chest compressions. So during CO2, the recommendation is that your, C- your end-tidal CO2, I'm sorry, during CPR, should be at least 10. So 10 millimeters of mercury minimum to, sh- to, uh, to reflect adequate chest compressions. Um, it's a good idea to take a look at the end-tidal CO2 at the beginning, get a baseline for it. Um, so let's say you're in the middle of working a resuscitation, knowing that giving CPR only delivers about 20% of the blood flow that a person would normally get if their heart were pumping effectively, and you're getting an end-tidal CO2 of, let's say, 20 with good chest compressions. And as you're working up this resuscitation, you're noticing a trend. You're noticing that it's going down to like 18, 16, 15, you're getting close to 10. What might that signal to you as the person leading that resuscitation what can what might a gradual decrease in your capnography and your capnometry mean during cpr low quality cpr low quality cpr as the person compressing compressing the chest is getting tired those chest compressions are going to become less effective so so monitoring this even without an advanced airway in place you can attach these your, uh, your CO2 detectors to just your regular BVMs with a mask ventilation, but monitoring that, maintaining a good seal on the bag, and seeing during that resuscitation, hey, that end is dropping, the quality of the CPR is getting less effective, will clue you into switching those, those, those um, compressors. And people that are telling you, no, 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 I can keep going, I don't need to switch every two minutes, this is objective data that you can look at in real time to show you whether or not those compressions are effective. So it really is important to rotate every two minutes our compressors, even though this isn't a CPR class, um, even on kids when we feel like we can go forever because they're smaller, they require less effort, even those little imperceptible reductions in compression quality will further reduce that cardiac output and then we're not perfusing as well, hence not producing as much CO2 and then we're getting those low numbers. And since we're talking about resuscitation during CPR, your compressions take the place of the heart, right? But even the best chest compressions are only produce about 20% of that heart's normal output. So remember from the last slide that we just looked at about hyperventilation, lower CO2 levels could be related to poor perfusion. Um, But say we're we got low CO2 levels because we're in that low flow, low perfusion state, and then suddenly we get a spike like this. And we get this abrupt rise. Now, if it's if it spikes and it's sustained, what might that reflect? Might reflect that the heart has kicked in, that the person has ROSC, a return of spontaneous circulation. They've regained a pulse. So, end-tidal CO2 monitoring while you're working that resuscitation can clue you in that you've been successful, and this can signal an opportunity to go ahead and check a pulse. Now, it depends. On your local protocols, if you complete your two-minute cycle when you see this, or if you stop right away and check for a pulse, that'll depend system to system. Um, But this is a good indicator if you see a sustained rise. Now, if it looks like what I'm showing on the screen right now, you get a couple of, say you've just given sodium bicarb, and then you see a few big, tall spikes like that. Um, Does that mean ROS if we've just given an amp of bicarb? So you'll see an increase in CO2 that's very transient. So if you're working a cardiac arrest and you give an amp of bicarb pretty quickly, once that circulates, you're going to get some increased CO2 because the metabolism of the bicarb produces some CO2 that's going to get measured. Um, But the difference between that and ROSC is one is sustained and one isn't. Once If you give bicarb and you get an increase in your end tidal within a few breaths, it's going to start to come back down. But if it stays elevated above that CPR threshold, then you probably have restored the pulse. And then this one's my favorite because this one's really satisfying. When you see it, it's so definitive and it can help guide your treatment. This is a great one to know. And I saw in the chat, somebody had already described something um, as looking like a shark fin. So when there's a lower airway obstruction, like bronchospasm from asthma or COPD, then you're classically going to see an enti- you're going to see a catenogram that looks like a shark's fin, just like you're seeing over here. You see how it's got this slurred line at the beginning and then this point and this abrupt drop looks just like a shark fin. Um, and that is classic for a lower airway obstruction. Um, another cool thing about it is it's going to give you real-time feedback about the effectiveness of your treatment. So patients with asthma, shark fin waveform, usually they're going to be breathing faster because they're trying to compensate for the respiratory distress. So you would expect a rate above 20. Um, It can be subtle at first. If a patient says, hey, I'm having some trouble breathing, they've got a respiratory history that includes asthma, um, you may have to look closely to see early shark fin. But a lot of our patients you run on are going to have a pretty pronounced one. The thing about monitoring this, so in addition to just noticing that shape, and the number that you're getting on your catnometry, pay attention to changes over time, especially the width and frequency of these shark fins. If they start to get narrower over time, that means they're happening more frequently, that's a sign of worsening of the patient's condition getting worse. So like this one up top is having some issues with asthma, but if this same patient now looks like the one on the bottom, that's a patient that's probably having impending respiratory failure and you're going to have to start bagging the patient or consider some more advanced treatments. So don't just say, oh yeah, that's a shark fin. Great, that's asthma, I know what to do with it. Continuously reassess this patient and this is going to help guide you as to what direction they're going. Are they getting better or are they getting worse? So for instance, if you notice you've given, say, some albuterol or you've given some IM epinephrine, and the shark fin starts to widen out and get closer to that more normal looking appearance, then you've got objective data that shows you that this patient's airway obstruction is improving. Um, This is a lot more specific and a lot more sensitive than just listening to lung sounds. Um, Because I'm sure many of you know, some of the worst asthma asthma patients have very little in terms of wheezing because they're moving so little air. Uh, So let's do another breathing exercise. I want you to breathe in and out normally. And then on your next exhalation, breathe in before you finish exhaling and then do it again faster. So you can quickly see, don't keep doing it till you pass out, but you can quickly see how hard it becomes to breathe, right? That's what we call breath stacking. So sometimes you can see a patient who has this on their capnometry, you can see how the baseline starts to not return all the way back down to baseline, right? You see how it's kind of getting elevated between breaths. So if you notice this, um, it could be due to equipment issues. There's There are a number of things that can cause this, um, but sometimes it's a sign of air trapping or air stacking, especially in our asthmatic or COPD patients. Our asthma patients have a difficult time getting air out. That's why they produce those expiratory wheezes. When it's severe, they might not be able to completely exhale all that CO2 before they start their next breath. And if this goes on for a long time, pressure starts to build up in the lungs, and they can almost develop a sort of compartment syndrome in the chest. Uh, So remember, in most protocols, the standard of care, if albuterol is ineffective, or if the patient is having very severe asthma, is to give intramuscular epinephrine the same way you would for anaphylaxis. Um, Because think about it. If everything is super tight, are they really gonna be able to inhale a lot of that albuterol deep into the lungs to open everything up? Probably not. So you're gonna to need to give them IM epinephrine to open up the airways and allow them to release some of that trapped, uh, that trapped CO2 and, and, and get a better tidal volume. All right, this one's a little bit tricky. This one we call hypocapnia with pradiphnia. Uh The CO2 is low and we're seeing very slow, shallow breathing. So normally we would think hypoventilation would produce a high CO2 level, right? Because if you're not moving enough air, then you're gonna be retaining that CO2 and the CO2 is gonna build up. And so really we should be seeing these taller waveforms. Um, But in some cases, the breaths are so inadequate that they're physically not clearing enough of that dead space that we talked about. And as a result, the CO2 is staying in the lungs and not really getting sampled adequately by the monitor. And this produces really what's a dampened waveform. So it looks like a low CO2 reading, but it's probably not reflective of what's really happening inside the patient's body in terms of how much CO2 they have, but it's more of a mechanical issue with them having inadequate respirations and therefore the monitor just can't get a good sample. Um, occasionally they'll give a big breath or you might bag them to assist. And then you'll see a big spike in CO2 as you blow off some of that retained CO2. Uh, Some of the things that can cause this type of breathing, um, opioid overdoses. So if you've ever monitored capno on a patient that was not ventilating adequately after overdosing on a narcotic, and then you start bagging them, you'll see this really big rise initially of CO2 until you normalize it because you're finally blowing off all the CO2 that's just been sitting in the lungs. Um, And other things that can cause central nervous system depression, heavy sedation. All right, Um, say you have somebody that does have an advanced airway in place. You've intubated them or you've put whatever advanced airway that you're using. And while you're ventilating them, you're noticing this little notch in the end right? You're seeing this thing, we call this a curare cleft or a notched plateau. Um, This signifies to you that they're trying to take their own breath. On top of what you're doing. So once you have an airway in place and you're bagging a patient, you should have a nice box shaped airway uh, waveform. If you're noticing these notches, that means that the patient is, their diaphragm is attempting to take some breaths. So whatever protocol you have in place for sedation, this is a sign that they need more of it. Uh, So you should not see this when you're managing somebody's airway. That means that they're attempting to breathe through what you're doing. Uh, So go ahead and follow your protocols for giving them some extra sedation so that you'll be able to bag them without them um, interfering with it. And then this one, this one we call stair-step alveolar plateau. Um, There's several things that can cause this also. A lot of times if they're on a mechanical ventilator, uh, it's related to the equipment. But in the field, if you have a patient that's breathing, say, spontaneously, and you have them on the your nasal cannula capnography, and you're starting to notice a pretty consistent stair step to the end of that, this is an ominous sign. This is usually associated with impending respiratory failure or respiratory arrest, because this means they are getting tired of breathing. So if you've got a respiratory distress patient, you start to notice this jagged appearance at the end of their catnographs. Capnograph, uh, um, be prepared to bag them, to give them supplemental ventilations. Or if you're in a system where you can intubate them, uh, they may need intubation. Uh, so just be aware of this. This is an ominous sign. All right, so back to this one. So you're asked to describe this waveform. Based on everything we've talked about, what would you des- how would you describe this? And what does it mean? and you can throw it in the chat. Okay, shark fin. And what does it represent? You have somebody who's respiratory distress, you see the shark fin, what's the most likely cause for it?
1: Asthma pneumonia.
0: There we go, asthma or COPD. So it's not just good or bad or absent or present. Let's talk about some special cases. So we talked about advanced airway monitoring, right? And I just mentioned it again because it is so important. Every intubation, every time, if you have it available to you, and I can't imagine a modern EMS system today that does not have the ability to monitor and tidal CO2 if they also have the ability to insert advanced airways, um, they gotta be on some sort of continuous capnography monitoring. You need to be able to see that waveform. It is the gold standard when it comes to advanced airway monitoring, Um, whether it's an ET tube, a King Airway, an IGEL, you should be able to hook this up to your monitor. Um, Just remember, if they're in a low perfusion state, then it's good if you could probably monitor this before you intubate them so you get a good baseline, but you should still have a present waveform. Um, If you lose that waveform, you got to reassess that tube and you got to assume that it's come out. It may have been the best intubation you've ever done and you swear you saw it go through the cords and you know it's there and the lung sound sounded good, but things happen. Things get dislodged never, ever, ever show up at a hospital with an esophageal intubation. There's just no excuse for it. Um, sometimes if you do have an esophageal intubation, you might get those little blips like you're seeing at the end there. So, so you might see little ones at first, especially if they've had a carbonated beverage at first. So if they've had a carbonated beverage, they've had a soda before they got intubated, you may have a little bit of CO2 in the stomach. So when you first bag and you and if it is in the esophagus, you might get some small kind of Want to be waveforms there but within eight breaths those are going to disappear if it's from the stomach so be sure you look at it more than just for us for a fraction of a second right after the tube goes in um, so you make sure it stays nice and regular never hesitate to remove your tube all right let's talk about sepsis i got a couple of interesting case uh, uses for capnography now that we have a general idea of just what the waveforms mean Um, Sepsis is one of my favorite uses for capnography. Um, So sepsis causes a buildup of lactic acid in the body. This results in acidosis that the lungs try to correct by blowing off excess CO2. There's this inverse relationship between lactic acid levels and the amount of CO2 that you're gonna measure as an end title number. So at first this seems counterintuitive, right? Because if a patient is acidotic, and we think of high CO2 levels as being associated with acidosis. So if they're acidotic, wouldn't it make sense that the end titles is higher? But the body can't exhale lactic acid, only CO2. So in order to compensate for that lactic acid that's building up in the blood, the brain signals the body to breathe quicker, to breathe deeper, and to try and blow off that extra CO2 to restore some balance between the lactic acid and the CO2 level. Um, in sepsis, it's not going to be successful, and they're going to be acidotic, but that's why the end-tidal CO2 is going to be low in somebody that has sepsis. So the data is pretty strong about this. Anytime you have a suspicion of infection, so you've got a patient with whom uh, has a UTI, for instance, you suspect of a UTI or pneumonia, um, and you have them on your capnography, if the end-tidal CO2 is less than 35 and you have a suspicion of infection, it's likely sepsis. And statistically, if it's less than 25, it's probably or, or almost definitely sepsis. Um, now remember, people can have multiple problems at once, uh, but this is really a clue in for your patients that are in true sepsis and at high risk. And if you work in a system that has like a code sepsis type of alert, title uh, may already be part of your protocol for it, and if it isn't, it's worth exploring um, how to use this to help identify your sepsis patients. And another condition that's related, right, because it's also about acidosis, is DKA, because DKA stands for diabetic ketoacidosis. So in this case, it's not lactic acid like in sepsis, Um, it's the DKA leading to the person depleting their own internal bicarb um, stores, bicarb is a buffer for acid. So as they use up their bicarb, they go into acidosis, the DKA, and just like with sepsis, since the body can't produce enough bicarb to normalize that acid balance, the lungs get triggered to breathe faster. And so they start to blow off more CO2 to try and correct for that DKA, and the end tidal CO2 becomes low. Um, again, they're breathing, faster or they're breathing deeper or both, they're exhaling an excessive amount of CO2 to compensate. And so in a diabetic patient with high blood sugar and low end tidal, that's again, almost di- almost diagnostic of DKA. Now let's take a look at how capnography can help you differentiate between COPD and CHF. Pulmonary edema caused by CHF often causes rolls or crackles in the lungs, but uh, can also produce wheezes as the fluid starts to obstruct your lower airways. This is called a cardiac wheeze. Um, in patients with histories of both COPD and CHF, it can sometimes be difficult to figure out which one's causing the shortness of breath. This is another time when adding catnography to your assessment can be helpful. Um, it'll help you tailor your treatments to the most likely cause. So since CO2 diffuses pretty easily through mild I'm sorry, since CO2 diffuses pretty easily through fluid in the lungs caused by CHF, the waveform will stay normal in appearance, like the one on the top here. You'll still, you'll still see that typical box shape that we've talked about. Look out for low end tidal though, uh, a low capnometry with a relatively normal rate and tidal volume. If you see that, this means decompensating CHF that's causing low CO2 production Uh, and is a sign of poor perfusion, like we talked about earlier, and they're probably developing cardiogenic shock. Um, On the other hand, if you notice a shark fin, then you'll know that bronchoconstriction from COPD is present, and that'll help differentiate between the bronchoconstriction, respiratory distress of COPD, versus the pulmonary edema cause from CHF. So let's look at pneumonia, another cause of shortness of breath, and how capnometry and capnography can help you. So to differentiate CHF from pneumonia, let's say, um, is also pretty important, right? Because that's going to drive your treatment. Are you going to give fluids? Because maybe they have an infective process going on. Perhaps they're developing sepsis from pneumonia. Or are we going to withhold those fluids and look at our other treatment options because they're really having a a severe CHF exacerbation? Um, The challenge here is that both these conditions, CHF and pneumonia, can produce rolls or crackles in the lungs. Unfortunately, like we just said a second ago, since CO2 diffuses through fluid, it doesn't really care if it's a backup from CHF or if it's fluid caused by the infection. So you're still going to see a box-shaped waveform regardless of if the cause is CHF or pneumonia. And just like we were talking about a minute ago, just like CHF and sepsis can cause low end titles, so can pneumonia. And to make things even more confusing, both can cause a low pulse ox reading. So we need to think about this one a little bit. Let's think about heart failure. Heart failure affects both circulation and ventilation. So, Early on in a CHF episode, the patient usually hyperventilates to compensate for the extra work of breathing. This blows off extra CO2, and you'll typically see a lower than normal end tidal reading, so less than 35. But after a while, the heart will work harder to try and compensate for the failure, which causes hypertension. So a CHF patient with lower end tidal CO2 readings than normal with a normal or high blood pressure is in the middle of compensating. Now, eventually respiratory fatigue is going to kick in and their breathing is gonna become less effective. So hypoventilation is gonna develop. And as they tire out and start hypoventilating, the CO2 is gonna get retained and that end title is gonna start to rise. So if you have a CHF patient that has still a normal or a high blood pressure, but their capno is getting higher than 45, then they're going into respiratory failure and you need to be prepared to manage that. So let me ask you a question. If capno can't necessarily differentiate between CHF and pneumonia, how can you tell the difference? And the truth is there's no single diagnostic tool that's gonna to replace a good history and physical. The key to differentiating CHF from pneumonia is your overall assessment. If the patient has a history consistent with a lung infection, so they have fever, productive cough, especially if they have kind of nasty looking sputum, like that dark green sputum, then it's probably pneumonia. They might even have signs of dehydration as opposed to fluid overload because of the, uh, because of the effective process. On the other hand, if they have signs of heart failure, like pedal edema, maybe a dry, non-productive cough, or even that classic pink frothy sputum as the CHF gets worse and that pulmonary edema worsens. Um, or less commonly, you may see JVD. Then it's probably CHF. And then there's trauma. Um, I don't know how many of you are using entitled CO2 in trauma. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's becoming more and more commonplace. Uh, and there's just been some new studies that have come out that I read uh, that were pretty good about the usefulness of monitoring your capnography in trauma. So. Say you have a patient that's had a major trauma and you're concerned that they might have some severe hemorrhage, maybe internal hemorrhage. What would you expect your capno to be? Would you expect it to be normal? Would you expect it to be high? Or would you expect it to be low? What do you guys think for your trauma patients? High. Okay, I got high. High. Any other, anyone else different? Ah, in the chat here, lower perfusion equals lower capnography. So think about it. If they're losing blood volume, that means there's not enough blood to circulate to meet their body's needs. And what did we say? How is CO2 produced? It's produced through adequate perfusion. So the lower the perfusion, the less CO2 gets produced. And your capno, assuming that there isn't a disturbance to your ventilations, with normal tidal volume, normal breathing. The capno will be low if someone is having severe hemorrhage and they have low perfusion. The thing I like about this is, sorry, my thing froze here. Um, Your capno is like having a constant blood pressure assessment and a constant finger on a pulse. Because when you're transporting a trauma patient and you're doing a bunch of interventions and you're monitoring that patient and trying to get them to their trauma center, um, how often can you really assess the blood pressure, right? How how do you monitor against the development of PEA for any patient, trauma or otherwise? Capno gives you that real-time feedback about perfusion. And so if you start to see a trending downward in their capnography of a trauma patient, that's like as if you were monitoring their blood pressure constantly. If you see that downward trend, you know that they're, they're decompensating and you can start to take actions for that or notify your receiving facility. Um, they did some studies, and they found that an entitled CO2 of less than or equal to 33 in trauma was predictive of the need for blood transfusions, surgical interventions, and even the need to give vasopressors in, in these cases where the other interventions weren't, weren't sufficient. Um, so start using capno to monitor your trauma patients if you're not doing that already. And then the last thing, and I save it to last because it's a real tripping hazard here. We talked about people misattributing anxiety um, to just being kind of under a lot of stress and, and emotional when there are underlying causes of anxiety, panic attacks, anxiety attacks, no matter what you call it, this should always be the last thing that comes to mind, not the first thing, because there are lots of really dangerous conditions that can lead to anxiety. ACS acute coronary syndrome, heart attacks, angina, respiratory problems, hypoglycemia, head trauma, pulmonary embolism, the list goes on and on and on of things that can make people anxious. And if they have an underlying psychiatric condition, they can still have all these other problems. And as providers, we often have those biases towards certain patients where we dismiss their concerns and just say, oh, it's because they're having an emotional um, or behavioral problem. So how can you use capnography for this? So it's not going to diagnose, is it necessarily a panic attack versus something else. But if you really do your good assessment and you have a reasonable belief that, hey, you know what? This person has low risk factors. They have good health. All of my other assessments are coming back. um, And this really seems like they are having a true anxiety attack, a panic attack. They're hyperventilating, right? Capnography can be used as biofeedback. This is a really cool use of that because we've all been there, right? We've all coached our anxiety attack patients to slow your breathing down. They're getting all the carpal pedal spasms, right? Their face is numb and tingling. And you're trying to coach them, slow your breathing down, slow your breathing down. So if you put them on capno, and you orient them to the waveform and the number, knowing that normal is between 35 and 45. Um, if they're hyperventilating from anxiety, it's gonna be low, right? Because they've been blowing off more of that CO2. And you tell them, okay, you know, We're going to work on your breathing. This is how you're going to feel better. Watch this number. You want this number to be between 35 and 45. And look at this waveform. This is your breathing. So watch your breathing, slow it down, watch the rate. And they can start to use it as biofeedback to have something to focus on and coach their breathing. And this in studies has been shown to be very, very effective in helping patients that are having true panic attacks regain control and start to get back to their baseline. But of course, be sure it really is a panic attack and not a pulmonary embolism, right? All right, so last thing. So this is, a, this is a photo I took at the hospital a little while ago of a patient. So take a look at this monitor. We got a heart rate of 131. This is a patient that came in with respiratory distress. Um, End tidal CO2 on this monitor is shown over here, it's 25. So think about, it. is that lower is that high or normal? Their respiratory rate here is 24 and their O2 saturation is hundred percent. So this is a patient that's telling you they're having trouble breathing. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And you're looking at their O2 sat. It's hundred percent. And maybe you haven't said this before, but I've heard it said in the field at least. Oh, you're fine. You're, you're, your oxygen's a hundred percent. There's nothing wrong. You're getting plenty of oxygen as if it's all in the patient's head, right? But what is this? Capnogram look like to you? Does this look like something that we we talked about just a few minutes ago? It looks like a shark fin, right? Look at that nice little shark fin. So this is a patient that is hyperventilating, right? Because they are breathing at 24 per minute, so they're tachypneic. Again, just a little bit over 20 is still significant. And uh, I have a 911 cast podcast episode all about respiratory rate. It's one of the most one of the most sensitive vital signs that we tend to make up, right? Everybody's got a respiratory rate of 18. Um, Shark fin, high respiratory rate, low end tidal CO2 because of it. This is a patient that truly is having significant bronchospasm and needs intervention. They need treatment for it. Um, And as this patient gets treated, this will all start to normalize. And this shark fin is gonna start to look more and more normal. And in the chat, absolutely, you can trend your CAPNO and you should. This isn't meant to be a number that's looked at in isolation. These are really meant to be ongoing assessments and trending uh, to give you a good assessment picture, help you develop a a better picture and a better uh, way of looking at your patients.